All right, welcome to episode 25 of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have a very special guest. His name is Keith Frankish. He's a philosophical uh, writer. He's an honorary reader in philosophy at the University of Sheffield, a visiting research fellow with the Open University, and an adjunct professor with the Brain and Mind program at the University of Crete. He lives in Greece. Welcome, Keith. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much for coming on. And so today, guys, I want to start out talking a little bit about Keith's article, or his recent article on AI Magazine, about the illusion of consciousness. So I wanted to start off with a quote just for kind of our audience for Tim to get a sense of what, what we mean by when we talk about the illusion of consciousness and to ask Keith a little bit about it. So Keith Frankish wrote, when you attend to what you are seeing, the visual information is globally broadcast, quote unquote, to mental systems involved in memory, reasoning, emotion, and decision making, generating the host of effects mentioned, which Keith touched on in the article. This process of global broadcast is called access consciousness, since it makes sensory information accessible to the rest of the mind and thus to you, the person constituted by these embodied mental systems. Again, I don't deny the reality of consciousness in this sense. So my main question would be Keith what do you mean by the illusion of consciousness and which form of consciousness do you deny right right um, talking about the illusion of consciousness is a kind of it's a risky way of expressing my my, my views um, because people hear that and they immediately think consciousness is the one thing that couldn't be an illusion it's self-defeating obviously I'm conscious uh, so and in a sense I think that's right. Uh, so why do I put it in this provocative way? Why do I talk about the illusion of consciousness? Well, it's it's for this reason. There's a certain way of thinking about consciousness, which puts a certain conception of consciousness right center stage. And I think that conception is 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 completely wrong. I think we need to reject that conception completely and replace it with a different one. And now for some people, though, that conception is, it, it, that, that is the heart of consciousness. So to deny the soundness of that conception, to say that we need to, to deny that consciousness in that sense exists, is for them, effectively, to say that consciousness doesn't exist, that it's illusion. So that's what, and now, that's, that's why I take this, this, this rather provocative approach. I say, yes, that conception of consciousness needs to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I don't by that mean that we are not conscious. I, I want to replace it with a different conception of what consciousness is. So you might say, well, why not just start with this positive conception that you have and say, you know, think about consciousness in this way rather than in that other way, in that, in that bad way. Mm-hmm. And the problem with that is it's the sort of thing that Daniel Dennett, for instance, has been doing for three decades or so. And he's simply accused every time he tries to describe how we should think about consciousness, mm-hmm. he's accused of just ignoring the real issue, mm-hmm. uh, of just dodging the, the real question of consciousness, which is this other conception. Okay. So I think the best thing to do is to face up to this wrong conception of consciousness and simply reject it and say that that's an illusion and then get round to building the correct conception. Mm-hmm. And what is so the wrong conception? What is this wrong conception? Yeah. That's just preliminary. That's just why I use this provocative language, why I talk about the illusion, because I want to shock people out of a bad way of thinking of consciousness so that I, we can replace it with a better way. Mm-hmm. 
not so that we just stop talking about consciousness altogether. Now, what is this bad conception? Okay, now, you quoted there from the article um, a brief description of what's sometimes called access consciousness. And this is the idea that when we're awake and attending to the world and conscious in an everyday sense, we're taking in information about the world around us. Our senses are um, sending signals uh, to our uh, sensory cortex, uh, 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 visual signals, auditory signals, olfactory signals, and so on. And the brain is processing these signals, constructing from them, if you like, a model of what's out there. Mm-hmm. And then using this information, distributing this information, making it accessible to a whole host of other um, uh, brain systems for control of emotion, memory, um, belief formation, desire formation, and ultimately for the control of action. And uh, the information is uh, the phrase that I that I use: the globally broadcast. Broadcast globally um, means within the brain, throughout the brain, and that, in a sense, makes the information conscious. It's available to the rest of the brain. Now, that's one conception of consciousness, mm-hmm. and I think most people whatever side of the debate they want to agree that that sort of thing is happening. But the, the people that, that are my opponents in this, they say that something else is happening alongside all that. And that's that a kind of inner world has been created, a subjective world of experience. It's not just that you're getting information about the colors and sounds and tastes and smells in the world around you. It's like something to get that information. The colors that you detect, you don't just detect the colors, the colors have a kind of subjective character for you. You don't just recognize that that something is blue. It kind of, you feel the blueness, you experience the blueness. Mm -hmm. And the same with tastes and smells and bodily sensations such as pain. It's not just that you get information about the state of your body or the state of the world. It's like something for you. Now, this is generally construed in a rather strong way. Um, this what it is likeness of experience um, seems to be completely private. You can't ever know with certainty what it's like to be me. Mm-hmm. You could test all my reactions. You could see that I classify things in the same way that you classify things. We. We um, both agree on which things are blue and which things are yellow and so on and so forth. But what does blueness actually like for me? Mm-hmm. Maybe blueness, as I, I mean, maybe my blue is like your yellow. Mm-hmm. As long as we classify objects in the world in the same way, we would never tell. So, and maybe my pains feel different from your pains. We both agree they're bad and we agree what causes them and we have the same sort of reactions when we're injured. But maybe the pains feel differently. And the same for all of us. This is a private, subjective world. Not just private in the sense that it's difficult to to explain, difficult to access, but private in the sense exactly sealed off from the rest of the world. And in the famous thought thought experiment that um, the philosopher Frank Jackson devised in the early uh, 1980s, you can imagine someone, she's called Mary in the example, who is a a neuroscientist of vision. She studies the neuroscience of vision. Um, but she's brought up 
and she has lived and done all her work in, an, in a black and white environment. So she knows all the facts of that vision. And we do imagine her living in the future when we know everything about the neuroscience of vision. She knows, she knows to the finest detail what is happening in you when you see colors, blue, red, yellow, whatever. But she has never actually seen those colors for herself. And so there's still something she can't know about hmm. color, what it's like to see color. And in a sense, we're all in the situation of Mary with regard to each other, because no matter how much I knew about the neuroscience of, of your color experience, I still couldn't know what the color, what it's actually like for you. <laughs> so here we are all sort of, we have this kind of, Dennett calls it the Cartesian theater. Cartesian, because of René Descartes and um, his dualism, that mind and body, the, the idea is that there is a, an immaterial soul that communicates with the material brain. Mm -hmm. He thought through the pineal gland. Sense information is sort of rooted to this gland and then kind of sort of broadcast to the immaterial soul, as it were, and then which in turn broadcasts back its instructions to the body. So there's this kind of non-physical element there that is central, and it, but I suppose it is the self. And although most people today, most philosophers and scientists aren't substance dualists in that sense, they don't think there's a separate soul, they do think there's kind of this private sort of uh, inner world. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's created by the brain, it is in a sense part of the brain, but it is still essentially private, like Descartes' um, souls, and it's where experience is kind of displayed for conscious awareness. And that's the conception. Now, I think that conception of consciousness is, uh, how natural it is, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, it's certainly very easy to get into that way of thinking about it. Mm -hmm. Think of you know, examples like spectrum, invert, could your blue be my yellow, and so on. It's very easy to get into these ways of thinking about it. And once you do it, it takes hold, it takes a grip of you. And you can't really think of consciousness in any other way. And then, of course, you have this huge problem. How on earth does the brain create this subjective inner world? Because it, nothing that is happening in the brain, the processes that neuroscientists and cognitive scientists describe, none of that seems to have any relevance to creating this, uh, this inner, uh, this, this subjective world of experience. And that's what David Chalmers has called the hard problem of consciousness. The easy problems are things like explaining global broadcast, the mm. process involved in access consciousness and so on, which are not easy and not trivial, but they are problems that we kind of know how to get, how, how to work on them and how to do neuroscience about mm. on these things. With the hard problem, it seems we're just in a totally different realm. It's, it's some kind of, something is created that is just nothing like the processes in the, that, we, that we can map in the brain. And uh, this seems, uh, it seems that the only way to, to, to address this problem is to start, is to engage in some kind of metaphysical speculation, to suppose that there is a non-physical element to us, uh, perhaps a non-physical element to the entire universe, perhaps this is like the intrinsic nature of all matter, this, this uh, um, subjective world. And then you get into things like panpsychism. Now, this is the conception of consciousness that I reject. I think this is a wrong, I think it's, we can, I think we can understand uh, why it's such a tempting picture and why this picture gets a grip of us, but I still think, I think it's an illusion. I think it's an introspective illusion. It's an illusion 
when we reflect on our own minds, we fall into this way of thinking about ourselves as kind of locuses of subjectivity. Mm-hmm. And I want to reject that picture. Now, in rejecting that picture, for some people, that is just rejecting consciousness itself, mm-hmm. because that consciousness is. So it seems like I'm saying the craziest thing in the world. And it, um, some people have said very much about it. I, I don't think I am. I think I'm rejecting a picture of consciousness that is compelling, uh, but not mandatory. There's other ways of thinking about it and better ways of thinking about it. Mm-hmm. So once you've got rid of the illusion of consciousness, then you will build a good uh, uh, non-illusory uh, theory of it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Cool. Yes. Yeah. Good. So um, there, when I was reading your article, um, there was something that stood out to me, um, specifically in reference to the example of sound. Um, mm-hmm. Physically speaking, uh, sound is made up of vibrations. However, when we interpret it, um, f- phenomenologically, we, we hear a distinct sound. However, that's not the objective reality of what makes up that particular vibration. Um, and in that sense, our interpretation of it is is illusory. Is that what you were saying, if I understood correctly? Maybe not. There's a bit more to it than that. I mean, I do think we... Um, I talk in the article about, we, we definitely bring something to this. It's not just that we are detecting properties um, that are there in the world. Um, we're detecting properties that matter to us. I mean, this is, this, 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 we're designed to, 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 our sensory systems are designed to latch onto things that matter to us, given the kind of creatures we are. Things that are dangerous, things that are, that are, um, and beneficial for us, and so we, we, we are very. Our senses are very, very selective. We they filter out most of the kind of noise around us, and they latch us onto things that matter. And I think when we talk about what our experiences are like, what we're actually doing is what we're actually being sens- What we're actually sensitive to is how they affect us. So the, the dimension of uh, say. Take pain as an example. What we're detecting there is some kind of bodily damage. But we're not just detecting, we're not just detecting it in a kind of neutral way of oh, there's some damage there. As, um, say, a, a, a robot with diagnostic systems might do. We're also detecting how it matters to us. The whole host of aversive reactions that it is producing in us. That just, the, I, I don't want to, I must be careful not to use phenomenal terms here, but the the uh, the emotional reactions, the, uh, the desires that it's great, desire for it to stop, most obviously, um, the associations, the memories, the the, 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 the the reactions that it is priming, this whole host of distress that is happening in us. I think we are monitoring that, brain systems are monitoring that, and kind of projecting it onto the source, onto the, uh, the, 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 the stimulus that is causing all of this. So we're detecting a feature of the world interpreted as something that is having a certain effect on us, in this case, a very negative one. And that is, when we talk, when we, our picture of phenomenal consciousness is a kind of distorted picture of that reality. That is really what is happening. We are, we are perceiving the world and our own bodies as filled with meaning with significance with the impact for us and our, our, our kind of metaphorical talk about what it's like is really a reflection of what it means to us mm-hmm. 
So it's not just detecting the properties, it's detecting them as significant for us. As, and I think this is a kind of extra layer. I think you could have creatures and possibly a lot of non-human animals like this who just detect the, the, the stimulus and react to it, but don't actually monitor their reactions. They're not actually aware of how they are being affected. They are just affected. Yeah. So all the distress is there, but they're not actually monitoring their, re, their, their, their distress. So the world in this way is meaningful for them. It's having this effect, but they're not aware of the meaning, as it were. We, we don't just, we're aware of kind of two things. We're aware of the stimulus and of what it means to us at the same time. Its meaning becomes an object for us as well as the thing itself. So then we can think not just, so we can not just detect, say, blue things, but we can detect their blueness, as it were, which is the way blue things affect us. Mm -hmm. Then we can start thinking, oh, but maybe this same thing, that the same stimulus could have affected me differently. Mm -hmm. And that's how we get into this idea of a spectrum inversion. And this idea that these... So we tend to think of these qualities as being just simple feels, you know, qualia, you know, um, what it is likeness, the, what it is likeness of blue or pain. I think that is a kind of metaphorical, distorted, caricatured representation of what is really happening, which is a whole host, host of, of reactive dispositions, multidimensional. We are reacting in all sorts of different ways at the same time. Emotional, associative memory, uh, uh, memories are being evoked, uh, all kinds of priming effects all kinds of cognitive effects. And all of this is kind of packaged up by our introspective systems into a sort of what it into a sort of representation of a simple feel, the feel of the thing. Yeah. But once we unpack that, we realize there isn't any simple feel there. There is just a whole host that what is actually when when the um uh, it, as it were it's um here's an example I like to to use. I'm not sure whether it's a very good analogy, but if you think about how a um a motion picture is really just a series of still, still images mm -hmm. that we perceive it as motion. The idea is that it's a bit like that, that introspection is seeing a whole host of separate of, of, of distinct channels of reaction, but representing it as a simple feel. Mm -hmm. And that's a misrepresentation of what is happening, but one that's kind of useful because we don't really need to know all the details of it. We just we need to know that this thing has that kind of impact for us. So represent in a simple way as a kind of awfulness of the pain, the blueness of the blue, the, 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 the taste of the coffee, whatever it is, just package it up in that way for sort of internal consumption. Mm -hmm. Steak is when you take this representation of this, this simple representation to be, to correspond to some actual simple mysterious qualitative property. Mm -hmm. Okay, so... Uh, yeah, and so and I also wanted to touch on so in terms of the the kind of conception that um, I guess you would call them kind of the metaphysicians would have of consciousness, right? Mm -hmm. So I mean, it's obvious how your conception of it vastly differs from theirs. But mm -hmm. from your article, it also seemed like you had an issue with the people who were the materialist reductionists, the ones who pretty much conceived of consciousness as just being a representation, if even that, of just brain states or just brain states with consciousness being an illusion. Well, look, I'm. It, yes and no. In a sense, that's what exactly what my theory is. I just talk about representations and represent and higher order representation, representations of our own mental activity, right. as well as representations. So I'm, I'm kind of with them. But what I, where I disagree with them is that they tend to a lot of um, physicalists tend to package their theories in realist terms, mm -hmm. as if they are explaining what this feel, this what it is like, as what it actually is. 
so they're kind of accepting this picture of there being this private inner world of of of, of uh, phenomenal properties, quality, or whatever word you want to use, and trying to ex and trying to provide an explanation for it in uh, the sort of terms that cognitive science uses in terms of representations and so on. And their opponents point out, well, that doesn't really work, does it? Because all you've really explained here is why we kind of think that our experiences have this uh, this elusive feel to them. You haven't actually explained the elusive feel itself, mm -hmm. because you, you, you just can't get from these kind of descriptions of structure and dynamics in the brain to some sort of pure qualitative feel, the feel of blueness. You just can't get there. What you can get to is an explanation uh, of why we think there's a feel, why we judge that there's a feel, why we represent ourselves as, as undergoing some pure feel. But you're not going to be able to explain the feel itself mm -hmm. because that's just, you know, the, 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 the conceptual schemes just don't mesh in any way. There's no way that an account of um, information processing in the brain, representation of the brain, in the brain can get a sort of grip on these pure qualitative concepts that kind of float free of all that. And so... That I think what the physicalists are, these physicalists are trying to do is they're, they're kind of buying their opponent's definition of what needs to be explained. Mm -hmm. And in so doing, they're setting themselves up to fail because their opponents can always say, yes, oh, okay, all of that processing is going on. The, the, the standard move here, of course, is to invoke a zombie. Mm -hmm. a, a zombie in the, philosophical, um, uh, in the philosophical sense isn't a, a kind of undead creature or whatever they, whatever they are on the move. Is. It's an exact physical duplicate of a human being, of a living human being, that has all the same physical processes reacting exactly the same way to stimuli. It has all the same representations, the same uh, processes of access consciousness and so on. It's absolutely behaviorally indistinguishable, but somehow it's lacking this subjective inner world, the kind of the lights are off inside. Okay, and now if you by that, if you buy the idea that consciousness is something more, it's, is the lights being on in some metaphorical sense, then of course you can use that as a reply to any physicalist theory of consciousness, because you can say, okay, I can imagine a creature that instantiates your theory of consciousness, that has all these representations and so on, whatever needs um, information processing states, but the lights are still off. Mm -hmm. So the only way I think for a physicalist to deal with this is to say, well, uh, I'm not really trying to explain the lights being on in that metaphorical sense because that, does, that conception of consciousness is wrong. What I am going to explain is why we think there are lights to be on or off. Mm -hmm. We have this conception of ourselves as having this uh, essentially private, uh, qualitative, um, having a Cartesian theater, as, uh, as Daniel puts it. That we can explain. And that's what we should focus on. In other words, we should focus on explaining the illusion of phenomenal consciousness, consciousness in this in this um, uh, elusive sense that I that I reject. Mm -hmm. So that's, I do I do. My claim is that this is if you want to be a physicalist about uh, consciousness, if you want to explain consciousness in uh, using the tools of neuroscience and cognitive science, then this is the way to do it. And if you want to be realist about phenomenal consciousness, if you want to say, no, these, these elusive things, these, these are real, then you've got to do some sort of heavy metaphysical theorizing. You can't get those things on the cheap uh, 
just by talking about representations and information processing. So in that sense, I actually agree with the anti-physicalists, that if you take these things seriously, then probably physicalism isn't going to give you an explanation. Hmm. But my bet is that once we have an explanation of the illusion, we will cease to feel um, compelled to take phenomenal consciousness uh, realistically. Yeah, and so the physicalists and their conception of it, is it that they either explain it away or they just sort of dismiss it kind of like in quantum mechanics where they don't really think of the observer problem or is it that they explain it as just a representation of the brain processes? Well, there are all sorts of physicalist theories. Mm -hmm. um, there are representational theories, theories that say that um, uh, the two main classes of representational theories. One uh, groups say that all you really, all you need to have phenomenal consciousness is, is to represent the world in the right way and for the information to be access conscious, to be broadcast in the right way to other mental systems. And they, they, they specify in detail what kind of representations you need and what kind of accessibility they should have. And then they say, if you have that, then you will be phenomenally conscious. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's the leap, you see. <laughs> um, if you have that, you would be able to react in ways, perhaps, you know, that are characteristic of creatures that we call conscious, but would you would, would that suddenly make the lights go on in this sense? Uh, it's, you can equally well imagine it as the, as, 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 as the, um, uh, the anti-physicalists would have you do uh, as happening in a zombie. Mm -hmm. Again, and then there are other theories, higher order theories that say, no, it's not just enough to have these representations of the world. You've also got to monitor your own experiences. You've got to represent your own experiences as well. Mm -hmm. So you have an, you have a, a perception, say, of uh, the um, uh, something blue. You have a, uh, a sense. Uh, you have a um, uh, you, your um, uh, uh, some sort of representation of, of damage to your own body. But you also have another mental state that represents that one. Mm -hmm. So you have a representation of your own perception, of your own sensation, mm -hmm. and that's what makes it conscious. Because now. You, you, you're conscious of something if you're aware of it. So you're conscious of the, you're, you're aware, you're, you're conscious of the book if you, you're looking at it. I'm looking at a book now, that's why I book. Sorry. Uh, you're conscious of the book if you're looking at a, a book. You're conscious of your experience of the book if you're having a representation of that. Mm -hmm. And that's what brings in phenomenal consciousness, they say. But again, it's just, there's this movement from, well, here's a, a, a theory that might explain our reactions and our reports and why we say we're we're phenomenally conscious if we're aware of our experiences as such we might be able to we would talk about the nature of our experiences as well as about the nature of the world that they that we were experiencing mm -hmm. we could say that experience was a, was a was a was a horrible one as well as saying you know i'm hurt we would say yes i didn't like the experience of being hurt you can talk about both things and that seems to get you the the the, 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 the this um, um, this sense of subjectivity. Yeah, but again, what you're explaining here is the reactions and the reports. Someone can still say in standard zombie style, yes, but I can imagine all those representations and those higher order representations occurring without the lights being on, as it were. Mm -hmm. And that's because you're defining consciousness here in a way that is... Um, it gives it nothing to do, as it were. It's just a pure feel. It's just the what it is likeness of being in that state. Mm -hmm. 
It is not tied to any reactions, to any reports, to it. It's not doing anything. It's just like a show, or not even like a show. It's like a sideshow that doesn't have any effect on anything. That is kind of going on in the. It's this, you know, there's all this information processing, and then there's this kind of movie being projected in the background mm-hmm. that isn't affecting the actual processes itself. Yeah. And so, no matter how complex you make the account of the processes, you're never going to explain, as it were, the movie in the background because that's a that's a separate thing, mm-hmm. okay, and that could be on or off. So, and then, then of course, there are other theories that will try to tie um, the existence of the, the 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 show, if you like, to certain kinds of information processing, and they will say this sort of information processing, when you get the right sort of information processing, that kind of the show just comes on. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the information processing, as it were isn't sort of conceptually connected with the show. It's not that you can look at the information processing and see that that would necessarily produce a show. It doesn't really explain it, but it just happens that when you get the right kind of information processing, then this inner show comes. Mm-hmm. This, that's, as it were, what it's... That's the sort of the intrinsic nature of the information processing. That's what it, it's like from the inside to be a creature that's having this information processing. Well, you can say that, but you're not really explaining consciousness you're not showing how that information processing explains consciousness you're just saying well look there is this subjective aspect and it must go along with some kind of activity in the brain so let's just say let's just kind of identify the two and say when you have this sort of processing then the show comes on but you're still not explaining anything because you don't need the show to explain all the reactions the reports you would still be saying the same things you'd still be saying that you are conscious that you're having this inner experience and so on, even if the show wasn't there. This is a crucial thing to remember about zombies. They think they're conscious. <laughs> David Chalmers' zombie um, uh, uh, twin <laughs> is just convinced that consciousness is not physical, as he is. Um, zombies behave exactly like us. They think exactly like us. <laughs> I mean, there are some qualifications about maybe this, this inner show somehow alters the contents of their belief, but in terms of actual reactions and what they tell themselves, they are the same as that. Mm-hmm. Now, you can do this. You can say there is this intrinsic aspect to the information processing. Um, the, the trouble is, of course, then you, you, you have this problem of saying, well, how do we know which bit of the information processing, which bit of the brain activity is actually intrinsic, which, which bit the, the what it is likeness kind of attaches to, which, which is the, the neural correlate of this sort of show. Mm-hmm. How do we find out? Well, again, we, it's, it's very hard because we can't have any access to other people's uh, inner lives. Right. We can't really have access to our own because all we can do is report by telling other people or ourselves what we're experiencing or pressing buttons when the, we, 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 we are conscious of something, whatever. It's mm-hmm. only through the reactions that we can get to know this inner world. Mm-hmm. And you can't actually, you know, you can't map, you can't do a sort of brain scan that shows where the, 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 the subjectivity really is. All you can do, detect, all you can, uh, all you can detect are the signs, the indications of it. And then you can map those onto brain processes but where the show itself is, where the actual subjectivity is, it's, it, 
There's, you, you, you cannot make progress with this. So these, are, I mean, you can have, the, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting these theories are incoherent. I mean, I might be tempted to argue that, but I won't do. I, I, okay, it could be like that, but there may be a much, a much, uh, I was going to say simpler, um, much more tractable way of thinking about consciousness, mm -hmm. which simply doesn't start in that place with these intuitions about subjectivity and about the, uh, the privacy and, uh, and so on. Reject that picture, have a look at it from another perspective, and it might all seem more tractable. That's the project anyway. And that's the project I think physicalists should be pursuing rather than trying to hold on to that conception and providing some sort of inadequate physical physicalist explanation of, uh, of the thing that... that um, uh, the, the, this uh, elusive thing. Right. And it does sound like, from your perspective, that it seems like the physicalist theories are just simply incomplete. Um, it's not exactly. I mean, I, in a way, that I mean, I think things like higher order thought theory, I think it's the, the very attractive. Um, I just want them to stop trying to explain phenomenal consciousness and try to, try to, exp try to reconceptualize what it is that they're explaining. Mm -hmm. I think they they might do a very good job of explaining why we have this introspective picture of ourselves. If we do have some sort of access to our own to our own perceptual and sensory states, mm -hmm. then that might very well generate the sense that there is this private inner world. Um, but then you're not explaining phenomenal consciousness; you're explaining the illusion of phenomenal consciousness. And mm -hmm. I think they should be recast in an illusionist framework, I think, because that is all they can ever explain. That All they can explain are is the reactions, um, the judgments, the reactions, the reports um, associated with consciousness. Right. And so and the way that we have ourselves, I mean, we only, we only know ourselves through our reactions, I think. I don't think we have, I don't think we are sort of pure, um, yeah, simple kind of, cells, irreducible cells that somehow know ourselves immediately with the, um, I think there was a kind of metaphysics of the self involved in all of this, um, presupposed by a lot of this, which I, which I would reject too. Maybe, maybe that's something we could talk about. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah definitely. <laughs> oh, okay. I thought it cut off. No, no, no. Okay. Okay. And so, and in terms of sort of the ideas or the concepts around the self, I think that when we talk about ourselves, we obviously like to think of ourselves as this sort of homunculus, so this, these sorts of seats of, you know, kind of the souls or the seats of the selves. And so in your article, you note that the atoms that make up the skin of the apple are in red, considered as properties of external things, colors are light reflective surface features, sounds are vibrations in the air, tastes and smells are chemical compounds, and pain in your toe is cell damage. It seems then that the qualities of color, sound, and pain, and so on, only exist in our minds as properties of our experiences. And Keith, from your sort of experience and from your understanding, do you feel that in some way that that experience, or rather that information, frightens a lot of people, especially for those of us who, I mean, we maybe find it hard to kind of think of ourselves as living in a matrix-like structure? Well, I, I should say that in that quote, I actually go on to kind of undermine this idea that these things exist only in our minds. In a sense, they do. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, I think this is, this is one of the sources of this picture of, of, of consciousness as an as a inner show. It's something like this, that it seems to us that the, the qualities, the, the 
sensory qualities of things, the, what, how uh, things look and taste and sound and feel, are all out there in the world. Colours seem to be painted on the objects around us. Mm -hmm. uh, sounds are out there in the air, taste is in the coffee and so on. But then science kind of tells us the sort of thing that, 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 that um, uh, things that you just, just read there, that really what, what is out there is a certain, in the case of colour, is a certain sort of surface structure that reflects light of certain wavelengths. Uh, and uh, to people with different, um, different uh, to creatures with different visual systems, um, it might um, it might look quite different. Mm -hmm. So, in a sense, it seems the the colours are produced by us. It seems they're our interpretation of what's out there. Now, one way of going on that is to say, okay, colour isn't kind of really real. It's not a part of the real world. It's a sort of representation of the world that we produce. Mm -hmm. I think that's sort of right. But the way you get to the kind of realist picture of consciousness is to say, yes, but colour is real, in a sense. It may not be real as a, a feature of the, the external objects, but it's certainly kind of real in some... I mean, I'm, I'm, it's there. I'm, I'm experiencing it. It's, I'm equated with it. I, the colours... So it must be in here. It must be somehow a property of my mind, or if my mind is just my brain, it must be in some sense a property of my brain. So somehow my brain is not just detecting what's out there in the world and representing it to me in a certain way, it's also producing this, you know, the blueness and the redness and the, uh, the coffee tastingness. Mm -hmm. That's how we get into this picture of this private world. And then how do we know that the, thing, that the, the blueness it produces is the same for everyone and so on. And so it's that colours aren't out there, so they must somehow be in here. And uh, they... But of course, what's in here is just neurons firing, and so and so they must be in here in some kind of non-physical way. Mm -hmm. That's how we get the picture of Now, I think the better way to think of it is what's in here is just representations of the world, representations that are infused in various ways with with meaning and significance for us. And that's all that color is 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 um, is um, uh, color experience is is a certain way of. Uh, uh, locking onto certain uh, physical properties of the world and representing them to, to yourself in a certain way. Mm -hmm. We don't actually have to hold on to the idea that colour is, in this qualitative sense, is real. Um, now, the question was, do, do people f find this disturbing is that yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. they sort of find it difficult to accept from the perspective i guess religion spirituality and even from materialism people certainly find this hard to yeah. accept uh, um the reaction to the article was um mixed i mean some people like it some people seem to kind of get get what i'm trying to say and, and think that it's a it's a a good way forward others Others, what's strange is that people often don't even seem to really read um, the article. They just get, they just react in a kind of emotional way. I feel I don't want to be unpleasant about people. Well, no, it's actually true. I saw. That's fair. I, I I definitely saw that a few a few of the comments that you received on Twitter were I, I, they were a bit excessive, and it didn't seem I like they. they Sorry, no, yeah, I, I think it's as if people feel threatened by it yeah. at a deep level. Um, it's not just that here's another way of looking at a psychological phenomenon. I mean, if I were to propose a, a theory of, of kind of 
an, un, an unorthodox theory say memory mm-hmm. or um, emotional processing or something like this. Nobody would get too excited, I think. Mm-hmm. Consciousness really seems to go to the heart of what people feel they are. And any suggestion that it may not be quite as it seems mm-hmm. gets people very upset. And I think... Now, I mean, I've talked to, to other philosophers who have similar views to mine, and they've all said the same, that, that this seems to, it touches something very deep. And I think that's, I think that's right. And I think that is in itself a very interesting fact about consciousness. Um, uh, my, and, uh, one philosopher whose work I admire very much is uh, Nicholas, hum- Nicholas Humphrey. He's a, um, actually an, uh, a psychologist and an evolutionary biologist, but he does a lot of uh, philosophical uh, writing as well. And he ha- he he doesn't kind of like the word illusion, but he, he he does have a very similar view of consciousness, the one I've suggested. And he, and he actually thinks this picture we have, this introspective picture we have of ourselves as having a special, private, inner um, inner world that is known only to us, and that is the kind of locus of all value and meaning and um, Selfhood, in a way, that this is this is a this is a picture that is not really very natural, but he thinks it's one that actually um, adaptive evolution actually selected for mechanisms that introspective mechanisms that create this picture, and he thinks it's it's uh, I mean he thinks it's a distinctively human thing I think, and he thinks it's given us a wholly different attitude to ourselves, to our own lives, to each other. It's made us feel that we're not just physical beings. Mm-hmm. We are special. We have this special interiority, as it were, that a robot say, couldn't possibly have, that maybe other animals couldn't have, although we could debate about whether they do. Mm-hmm. But we definitely have this, this inner world. And it's what make it's what's the source of everything. And maybe this inner world could survive the death of our physical bodies as well. So it's tied up with that. And he thinks this what this has done for us, it's given us a kind of much more enhanced interest in our own lives. Um, animals care about surviving, they've got all sorts of instincts that help them survive. We don't just have those instincts, we also have a sense of the importance of our lives. Um, we have a sense of the quality of our of our experience. We enjoy experience. We relish it. We want it to continue. It matters to us yeah. because of this picture we have. And we, at the same time, this gives us a, an enhanced uh, concern for others because we think they too are loca, lo, locuses or loci of, of of this special inner specialness. Yeah. And you know, if that's right, and he thinks that's. That's, he doesn't think that we actually do have these, well, let's call them souls, if you like. He does call, his book, 2011 book is called Soul Dust. Mm-hmm. And it's a nice title because it's, I guess the idea is that, that um, we have s- sort of souls, but they're sort of made of dust. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it creates this 
not no, it doesn't create a soul. These introspective mechanisms they create a sense of having soul, mm-hmm. and this is very very important to us. And I think that could go a long way to explaining why it's so threatening to challenge this notion. I also think, though, that it might, and I'm, I'm not sure whether I agree with, 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 with Nick about this um, having been an evolved, um, an adaptive feature. I mean, the other big influence on my work has been Daniel Dennett, and I think he he sees this illusion of, of um, the Cartesian theatre mm-hmm. as much less benign thing. Um, he thinks it's been influenced, been partially created by philosophical reflection, um, partly perhaps the sort that we just, everyone does as a, uh, uh, in their daily lives, but then uh, fostered by the sort of thing that uh, professional philosophers do. And um, he thinks it's, um, it's probably less, less, less benign and useful. But either way, it would explain um, why people are so attached to it. I'm inclined to think that actually getting rid of this picture could have advantages. There may be a better picture uh, of ourselves and our place in the world and our relation to each other, which isn't so self-centered. Mm-hmm. I mean, the whole point about phenomenal consciousness is that it's a, it's a subjective world. It's a world that is undetectable by other people so there's your world where you're experiencing your blueness and your pain and your coffee taste and so on and then there's my world my subjectivity where i'm experiencing those things which may be different to yours for all we know it could be inverted or whatever and these things can never really know each other we can use words, we can we have we use words like we can say blue with it's blue and we can agree it's blue, but what the actual subjective feel of blueness is like for you and what it's like for me, we don't know, we can't know, we're just, we are isolated selves. And of course, there must be a self, if, if we're talking about subjectivity, if we're talking about what it is likeness of these things, well, it, this presupposes some sort of self mm-hmm. for which these things are like something. Um, if there's a, if, if these are subjective feelings, then there must be a subject to whom they are, for, uh, to whom they are, um, uh, who is acquainted with them. That is the word that is used here. Acquainted. The subject is acquainted with the subjective character of its experience. Now, so we have this thing, these point-like things. <laughs> it seems that are directly acquainted with their own phenomenal worlds, and they can never really. They can never. So they can never interface, they can never share um, their, their, their subjectivity. And I'm not sure, I, I mean, it could be true. And I mean, whether I like the picture or not is neither here nor there. I mean, mm. the question is whether well, it's true. But supposing that picture were wrong, I don't think the consequences would be bad. In fact, I think they might be good. Because now we would have a picture of ourselves, not as these these. these irreducible selves, but as just complex physical organisms, wonderful physical organisms in a complex physical world who are connected to each other by all kinds of influences, causal influences, and who can, in principle, know each other as well as we can know any other part of the physical world. If I get to know someone really well, 
know all about their reactions, know how the world affects them, know their emotional reactions, their their, um, their, their associations, the um, the minute sort of triggers of of of, of behaviour that uh, that they have that, that are specific to them. Then I kind of know what it's like to be them because that's all there is to be this sort of like finely tuned instrument that's vibrating with the world. And if I know you well enough, I could know how you vibrate. And there's nothing deeply hidden. There is just your reactions to the world. So I like to say that, well, well this is a sort of idea that remember Mary, how she, you can't know what it's like to see colors <laughs> just by studying the information or even each of us, we can't know what it's like for the other person to see colors. Well, maybe, maybe, Maybe what Mary needs to do is not learn more about what it's like to see colors, but fall in love with someone who can see colors. Mm -hmm. Get to know someone really, really well. Know how color affects them. And maybe that's all there is to know, is what significance red things have for you. Mm -hmm. How you. So I think this kind of picture is actually sort of dismantling a kind of metaphysical individualism that I don't find particularly attractive. Now, that's not a reason for agreeing with the view, because you know whether the view is right or not is is independent of its uh, kind of emotional attractions to us. But I certainly don't think it's a a bleak view. I don't think the consequences would be bad. In fact, I think they might be rather um, um, rather attractive. Uh, they might. It, the consequences might be that we see ourselves as kind of fully at home in the world and fully present to each other. And so, what would you say is some of the empirical evidence for the perspective of consciousness being an illusion? Right. Well, <laughs> there can be no empirical evidence against certain sorts of realist views. If you want to say that 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 that, that there are. There really is this inner dimension, but it's undetectable by scientific methods. Well, the, you know, the empirical evidence is neither here nor there. There could be this inner mm -hmm. what it is likeness that is just undetectable from the outside. Of course, you can say that. Mm -hmm. So what reason is there? So if I say, well, it doesn't show up in science, okay? Science doesn't detect these phenomenal qualities. When, it look, when the neuroscientists look at your brain, they don't find these things. Right. Right. Now... That's not going to impress a realist at all. They're going to say, well, no, we don't expect them to. It's kind of it's a non-physical dimension of the brain, okay? So plainly, it's not going to show up by physical detection. So where does that get us? Well, if put it like this. If you think that science, there's a good chance that science should be able to explain consciousness, mm -hmm. then that's a sort of a reason for taking this view seriously. See you know, how much we can explain from this perspective without buying into the, meta, into the metaphysical picture. Now, what, what's really interesting, I think, is can we uh, explain our judgments about phenomenal consciousness? Can we explain why we tend to think of phenomenal consciousness in this way? Why we have all these intuitions about the inex inexplicability of phenomenal consciousness, about its being non-physical, about its being... Um, sort of directly presented to us in a way that leaves no room for error. You know, you can't, you, you might be in error about whether the book is 
blue or whatever, but you can't be in error about whether it feels blue to you. Mm -hmm. That's just direct. That's just directly presented to yourself. Mm -hmm. That is. Now, if we could explain, if we could say, oh, well, the reason people think that is not because they have some sort of irreducible self and that there are these phenomenal properties that are immediately presented to it, but because there are these kind of introspective mechanisms that are monitoring certain sorts of other representational states and are producing these kind of responses and so on. And when people try to articulate these, this is kind of what they come up with. And, oh, yeah, if we could explain all of, the, all of our intuitions about phenomenal consciousness without supposing that phenomenal consciousness is real, mm -hmm. then you might think, well, we've kind of uh, debunked belief in phenomenal consciousness. It's parallel to saying, suppose you take all the reports of people seeing UFOs and you can show in every single case that there's a some sort of mundane explanation for what they, uh, mm -hmm. for their beliefs. They, they're convinced that they saw a UFO, but in each case, you can say there's some meteorological phenomenon or there's some you know, aircraft or, or maybe that they were hallucinating or whatever. You, each, you can provide an explanation for their belief that doesn't mention an actual UFO. Then you think you've kind of debunked belief in UFOs. Mm -hmm. So if we could do the same for phenomenal consciousness, we could identify the introspective mechanisms and the, perhaps the theoretical framework that we bring to this introspection, why we tend to interpret introspection in a certain way. Mm -hmm. In such a way that we can explain why people have these strongly realist intuitions about phenomenal consciousness, then we would have debunked belief in it, and the reasonable thing to do would be to stop believing in it. Now, of course, the realists can go, yeah, okay, maybe you could do all of that, but it's still real. Mm -hmm. And, of course, you can say that. I mean, I can't sort of, I can't prove that it's not real yeah. if that sort of if that kind of approach doesn't work, if look, science doesn't detect it, we can explain everything you think about it without supposing that it's real. That doesn't sort of logically entail that it's not real. You can still say, yes, but it's real, and it's something that science can't detect, and it's something that just... All those beliefs which you've explained in... Uh, which you've debunked just happen to be true. It could be that in all these cases where people say they've seen UFOs, they did. We can explain why they saw the UFO without actually mentioning a UFO, right. but by pure coincidence, there was in fact a UFO there. Mm -hmm. So there was some sort of strange meteorological phenomenon, and it was the meteorological phenomenon that, fought, that made them believe there was a UFO, mm -hmm. but there actually was a UFO all the same hiding behind the meteorological phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Or they were hallucinating. That's what made them think there was, a, a, there was a UFO, but by pure coincidence, there was a UFO there as well. Right. And so when, they just happened to be right. Now, that's the kind of situation you're getting into with phenomenal consciousness. If you insist that it's real, you say, I, I say, I can explain all your beliefs about it without supposing that it's real. And they say, yeah, but it still is real. All these beliefs still are true, even though their truth is, that, that, uh, my having them has nothing to do with its truth. Yeah. Well, if that, you know, that's, I mean, I think that should start to get a bit of traction with people. And if people could see that the view wasn't scary, um, uh, that consequences might actually be benign and, and, and positive. But it's a matter of getting people to look at it a different way. You know, it's a matter of people, in the end, it's, 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 a diff it's a shift of perspective. And seeing that shift of perspective as attractive, given the way that you look at the world as a whole, I suppose. Yeah. And when they say it's real, do they mean exactly that it's real in the sense that it's a representation of the world outside? Or do they mean that it's real in the sense that it just exists in your mind? 
the second. Okay. They mean they mean that uh, that this sense that there is some um, that when you experience the world, you're detecting stuff outside, sure, mm-hmm. but also there is an inner aspect to this. There is what it is like to detect things that reflect light of certain wavelengths or the certain vibrations in the air there is a sort of what it is likeness to this an inequality to this which is known with a, immediately and with a sort of certainty you could be wrong about the world outside but you couldn't be wrong mm-hmm. about the quality of the experience itself and that's what they want to be realized about. and I note that, that, that what this means it means that there is some sort of uh, subject or self that can know facts about its own experience in a, in a way that doesn't depend on any sort of mechanism. Because if there was a mechanism, the mechanism could go wrong and they could be, they could be mistaken. It's a metaphysical picture, which I think, I'm not sure what sort of notion of the self it involves, but it's certainly one that isn't, where the self isn't some sort of cognitive structure or some sort of cognitive system of some sort. The self is much more primitive than that on this picture, and it has this direct awareness of its own subjective world. Um, so yes, that's the kind of picture. So the idea is that we might be able to explain in cognitive terms why people have this picture of themselves as kind of irreducible selves that are directly acquainted with this inner world. We might be able to explain why people have that view of themselves without supposing that it's true. Mm-hmm. But then the realists say, but nevertheless, it is true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, interestingly, I mean, a lot of what we, of Alan and I talk about on this show is sort of um, in terms of mental health, how our perceptions are kind of misconceptions of the world. And something that Keith and I started talking about a little bit online before we started, obviously, before we agreed to do the show, was essentially about how our sort of our psyches are, in a sense, prone to mis- in misinterpreting reality and how that can even relate to mental health. So myself, as a mental health clinician, I often deal with clients who have what are called cognitive distortions. And so what I wanted to also talk to Keith about today was a study of implicit biases and just cognitive distortions as a whole and how we can kind of translate what we know from brain science from Keith's end, right, to kind of to my end in the clinical field. And so, Keith, can you tell us a little bit about your study in implicit bias and what you've learned? Oh, right, implicit bias. Right, okay, so we, we, we're on to a different aspect of, yeah. of my research. Um, I, I, this came out of thinking about the nature of belief. Um, and not belief in a in the sort of sense of faith, but just belief in the everyday sense. You know, I believe that I'm sitting here in my office talking to you. I believe that there's a cup of coffee in front of me. I believe that it's Sunday. These sort of things. Mm-hmm. These are beliefs, and these kind of guide us around the world. It's we, you know, we explain people's behaviour by referring to what they believe. Why did I? Why was I sitting here in front of my? Uh, computer uh, at the, the, the moment when you called, well, I believed you were going to call, and I believe, and, uh, and I want, of course, desi- desires come into this too, belief, and then, des- and I wanted to be here, I didn't want to let you down, and so that's why I was here. Yeah, Thank you. <laughs> we don't want to let you down either. <laughs> so, um, so there's this very natural way of explaining people's behavior and predicting their behavior in terms of their beliefs and their desires, and so there's, when I was in grad school, which was... <laughs> quite a while ago now, there was a a very lively topic in philosophy of mind was, you know, is this kind of belief-desire talk, the the belief-desire explanation, folk psychology, as it was often 
called. Is this a just a kind of like sort of handy way of of of, of you know getting on with other people, or is it really getting at something that's actually you know psychologically real? Mm-hmm. You know, is this a part of scientific psychology? You know, are there really are there really sort of some kind of encodings in the brain that represent beliefs and desires, um, or is it just just folk psychology, just you know, just a sort of everyday like the I mean, I don't people used to explain uh, each other's behavior. They used to explain people's behavior in terms of their being possessed by demons. Mm-hmm. And doubtless that, well, some some sorts of behavior in terms of their being possessed by demons, and doubtless that you know did help a little bit in understanding the way they were behaving and explaining their distress and predicting what they would do next. Mm-hmm. But clearly, it wasn't a you know a part of scientific psychology, and it was abandoned. So, what about belief desire psychology? Will science find a better way of thinking about uh, our, our behavior. And so this was what I, this was the debate I was interested in. And I, and the line I took on this, and partly again inspired by work by Daniel Dennett, who has been a huge influence on me, is that when we talk about beliefs in, uh, in, in, everyday, um, in everyday life, there's actually two kind of rather different things that we mean. And one are kind of beliefs that are sort of, implicit mm-hmm. um, or that it just kind of operate under the surface as it were that it might say non-conscious I don't mean beliefs of a traumatic kind or anything like this I just mean just beliefs about how the kind of world works mm-hmm. you know where the where the taps are which way to open the cupboard doors how, how the controls of the car work now much of this some of this may have been originally explicit you may have thought about this when you were learning to drive but very quickly it becomes automatic and obviously a lot of it you've never even thought about you've probably never thought explicitly about which way to turn the tap or you know which one is the hot and cold tap or whatever you just kind of but it's same no it's it's, it's, it seems perfectly reasonable to capture this in in belief desire terms why did he turn the tap that way rather than that way they believe that would make it come on why did he press the indicator stall because he wanted to signal a turn and believe that that would do it mm-hmm. so you can and, and of course you can do this with animals perfectly well why did they why was the why the dog run into the kitchen because he believed that food was was um, was, uh, was there was there was food there and so on. so you have this kind of very um sort of very sort of thin notion of belief that is a kind of operating in the background all the time and is guiding our behavior and it's just um getting us around the world doing the kind of you know, the, the sort of cognitive drudgery, as it were. And then we also use belief for a rather different sort of thing, which is kind of conscious episodes, mm-hmm. where kind of thought comes to mind. Uh, and it's, and you kind of react to that thought. And this seems to have a, this seems to play a kind of different role. It kind of can jolt you out of the routine autopilot that you were on guided by the other kind of belief and an example I, I, uh, that i have here that i kind of like is you're driving to work and you're following the the normal route that you take again guided by these kind of background beliefs about where you work and uh, the best route to get there and so on mm-hmm. but then at some point you consciously recall that there's there, there's there's some sort of diversion that roadworks are uh, the roadworks today, and you're going to have to take a different route. And that suddenly interrupts this steady flow of of, 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 of automatic control. And it, it's almost like the you're sort of kicking off the autopilot and 
taking manual control of the of the of the, of the plane as it were. and um, and you uh, you you change route as a as a consequence. Mm-hmm. So I I developing this kind of thing. I I think that there are really sort of two levels of belief. There's this sort of non-conscious level, and then there's this conscious controlled level. And what is this conscious control level? And and how does it work? And uh, and the sort of story that I that I developed about that was that it's something like a sort of kind of commitment that when you form one of these beliefs, you're or the conscious belief, you're kind of committing yourself to kind of regulating yourself by a certain um, uh, uh, a bit of information or a certain propositions, you might say. So at some point, you had been told that roadworks were happening on this day, and you kind of took that on board, as it were, and you kind of acknowledged it as something you should, like a sort of marker you should steer by from now on. And then you maybe just sort of let that slip, and you just went back onto the autopilot. But when you have this conscious episode, you are recalling that marker that you'd set down and, fo- and, and, and honoring the commitment you've made to kind of steer by it mm-hmm. and change your course. So it's a kind of level of conscious self-manipulation involved by placing markers down for yourself and saying, uh, I'm, I'm, I must regulate myself by that um, uh, bit of information. Or it could be indeed by a goal. You could set yourself the, the, a goal of, say, I don't know, getting more exercise which would be equivalent of a desire. And you try and regulate yourself by that, by certain kinds of self-prompting, self-reminding. Um, you could even you know, sort of write notes and things down to remind yourself of this. And all of this is to kind of jolt you out of the sort of routine kind of level of non-conscious control mm-hmm. that you've been under. And now maybe if you do this, um, this self-control, this, this self-regulation effectively enough and over a long enough period, it will kind of sort of seep down to the lower level and become automatic too, and you won't need to do it anymore. But until you do, there's this higher level of, of self-control. Now, where does all this come in with implicit bias? Well, there was a lot of work on implicit bias, the idea that um, people, although they disavow any kind of explicit prejudice, they're still, you know, they're still showing prejudice in their behavior. Mm-hmm. And the idea was that this was a sort of, I think, a sort of, the idea was that this, explicit level, what they actually say to research to, to, to in questionnaires and so on is what they really believe. But then there was this distorting underground underground um, influence of, uh, of, of prejudice. Now, from the picture that I have, it's kind of the other way around, that the automatic, unreflective sort of behavior, which is just their regular belief, was the biased one, was the prejudiced one. Mm-hmm. So they were just people who were kind of prejudiced or biased. But they had made these kind of explicit commitments to trying to overcome it. Mm-hmm. Now, maybe they'd made those for social reasons. Maybe they were particularly keen to affirm them when they were being questioned. Mm-hmm. Maybe they'd made them, you know, quite sincerely that, you know, really, I, I really don't like these attitudes. Although I do recognize maybe, or perhaps they do or don't recognize, that they are still operating under the surface. Right. Just in the way that, you know, your ordinary routine about getting to work is operating under the surface. And so what you're trying to do is you're trying either for social reasons or, let's say for sincere reasons, you you know, you really don't want to overcome this, to regulate your behavior by a certain sort of standard of fairness. And then these are your your conscious beliefs on the matter. Mm -hmm. That if you're not particularly, if you're not especially attentive, if you're, I don't know, if you're tired, if you've got other things on your mind, you kind of slip back into the... Um, 
automatic control. Mm -hmm. So this is really, uh, it's not implicit bias in the sense of a sort of distortion of what you really are. It kind of is who you really are, but who you're, what you're, who you're trying to be better than. So, um, and then you can think about, you can think about the, uh, one, one crucial part of this story is that the conscious stuff is kind of motivated. You are following kind of policies of self-manipulation, um, self-regulation to try and keep yourself in line with these, these goals or these uh, epistemic commitments that you've set yourself. And this is motivated. And it may be just because you think it's right, or it may be because you want to present that image to somebody else, mm -hmm. or maybe because you want to present it, you know, to yourself, yeah. and you want to yeah. think of yourself as being a better person, which is, you know, fine. Um, but my suggestion is really that we sort of turn it the other way around. It's not that the implicit bias that needs explaining and understanding. It's the attempt to overcome this. That that's just belief. That you just believe that. It's the attempt to change that belief, to, to make yourself a, a better person, at least at this explicit level. Mm -hmm. And I think that, and then, of course, you can think about sort of strategies you can use to help that. Um, there were two dimensions to this. One is, you know, do you recall these commitments do you, you've made? Or, you know, do you recall them at appropriate moments? Um you know, if you just forget it, if you forget about them, then, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of ineffective. The other aspect is to do with um, what I call strength of will. Once you do recognize that there's a kind of conflict between what you're just implicitly disposed to do and what you ought to be doing, are you strongly enough motivated to act on the belief about, it's actually a belief about your commitments. You committed yourself to this course, to following this, this goal or to standing by this proposition. Mm -hmm. Are you strongly enough motivate, motivated to act on that commitment rather than just on what you want to do at the, at the automatic level? So there's, there are issues about, about um, self-monitoring, recognizing when it's important to act on the commitment. And then there's there are issues about motivation, about getting yourself to do it once you have recognized. And it's quite complicated, I think, um, the, the sort of picture that you have. Yeah, yeah. And so I remember there was this episode that we had when Alan was telling us about, well, kind of me, the audience, about how the sort of stories that he would tell himself and how they would, would essentially affect his, not only obviously his mood, but his kind of perspective of the world and sort of his behavior. And I was wondering, Alan, so can you tell us about that, what it was like for you when you were talking about um, how it was like when you would sort of feel, uh, what was the word? When you would feel like the um, whatever it was that, however you would kind of misinterpret uh, misinterpret reality, how it would affect you and kind of how it would affect your behavior. Well, I'm definitely with uh, Keith here as far as um, what he mentioned earlier, as far as uh, setting markers for yourself mm -hmm. to, you know, kind of act from that higher order of thinking as mm -hmm. opposed to that automatic, uh, the automatic processes that usually dictate your life. Right. So for me. Um, in order to, let's say, for instance, uh, let's say, for example, you mentioned exercise before. Right. To make myself exercise, I had to uh, consciously, um, mar as he said, mark when I needed to, um, uh, to go work out, for instance. Mm -hmm. So here's the thing. For me, it was uh, not easy. It's not an easy process. Yeah. In practice, like uh, from uh, when you think about it, yes, I understand. Like the processes of learning a, a, a new behavior. Mm -hmm. uh, first, there's um, uh, unconscious incompetence, conscious incompetence, 
conscious uh, competence and then uh, unconscious competence, mm -hmm. right? So in order for me to get to that last level, it was a huge, it was like a crazy process mm -hmm. to make a long story short. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, eventually I went through those stages and eventually it became something that was automatic, mm -hmm. but the process of um, that going through that journey was, was not an easy one as far as that goes. And even developing the belief that you were able to do it. To develop the belief that I, well, here's the thing, uh, when, when you've seen that there are other examples of people who have done it before, mm -hmm. we have many icons mm -hmm. uh, all across the internet, all across the world mm -hmm. of people who have, a, let's say, done something like, a, let's say, for example, physical exercise. Mm -hmm. it, it wasn't impossible to believe that it's something that I could do because I didn't see myself as uh, so different from other people. Right. Um, um, actually, you know, if we could get off this for, for one second, sure. I actually want to give you, uh, Keith, uh, feedback on your article before. Mm -hmm. um, I actually really uh, like your view that um, it, that that this sort of self-centered, um, individual, individualistic uh, view of uh, consciousness is uh, it's it's not it's not very uh, useful. Well, one, it's not the point that you were talking about whether it's useful or not. But I like your view because it actually shifts us from that self-centered view to more of a, a communal view. You actually then can, um, as, a, as a symptom, as an effect of um, the view that you espouse, you would actually care about someone else's experience and try to learn about what their experience is like as opposed to uh, using your own experience as the uh, primary uh, in way of interpreting Point things. of reference. Point yeah. of reference. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, the there was, I mean, as I say, the the kind of moral consequences of the view, in a sense, are irrelevant to its truth. I mean, it could be that you know the truth is pretty unpleasant. I mean, the, a lot of things in life are just unpleasant. Um, so I wouldn't argue for it on the basis of it having benign moral consequences, but I think it does all the same. And uh, and I think it's worth stressing those, particularly in the face of people who think it has very uh, it has the opposite uh so yes i mean on this view there's nothing that's in principle hidden i think uh really your subjective world is kind of the story you tell yeah it's it's not something that's just sort of static there inside you like there's going to have this show playing in your head it's what it's your subjective response, uh, your subjectivity is your response to the world. It's, it's how uh, how you react, how you articulate it, how you articulate it to yourself, and how you can articulate it to me. Mm -hmm. And if I know you well enough and observe you carefully and sensitively and listen to you, I could, in principle, get to know your story, the story of your subjectivity, the narrative of your subjectivity. Uh, in principle, as well as you do. And then there would be no subjectivity, as it were, in the sense of, you know, isolated. It would be a shared subjectivity. Mm -hmm. um, because I, I would know your story. The point is in this, it's all in the effect. There's no, there's not, you know, there's nothing in sort of in pain or something that is, uh, that is kind of just pure awfulness disconnected from all effects. It's all in the, what it does to you.
Yeah. I mean, the shadow that hangs over realist theories of consciousness is that of epiphenomenalism, the idea that this uh, is so disconnected from the physical world that it doesn't do anything in the physical world. Mm-hmm. You know, that all your reactions are, you know, explainable in terms, explicable in terms of the, the, the neuroscience. Mm-hmm. And this stuff is just kind of along for the ride, the, the, um, the, um, the phenomenal stuff. It doesn't make any difference. Well, as a conception of pain that doesn't, that doesn't make any difference, seems to me a very weird one. And one that, you know, why would it even matter? Why would it matter at all? Why does any of this matter? Mm-hmm. It's because I think consciousness has to be an illusion because consciousness matters. And of course, illusions can matter hugely. Um, not the, the, the objects of the illusion don't matter because they don't exist, but the illusion itself, the effect on you, matters terrifically. I mean, that's, you know, um, wars have been started over, you know, religions founded on illusions. And, you know, illusions can be, can be um, uh, malign and they can be benign. I think in this case it's, it's uh, well, I don't know. Let's not. <laughs> that's a that's a that's a, a tricky one. But uh, um, sorry, I lost my. my, my no, it's okay. But I agree with you. Yeah, at, the, at the end of your article, you did make uh, reference that even if our interpretations are uh, our phenomenological interpretations are illusory, it's necessarily you're not saying anything bad by saying that. It, oh. It's fine. We act as if the illusion is real anyway. It's not. For example, the people where there was blowback, let's say on Twitter, for example, I'm not sure. I, I mean, I can understand someone being emotionally reactive. I can understand their reason for do- being that way. But if you truly read the article and you're nuanced Ooh. about it, nothing. It's not very. Con- it's, I wouldn't say it's controversial what you're saying. It's it's more of a, a just a, like a. a in my opinion, a, a very good interpretation of consciousness and a, a nice reasoning uh, behind um, how we understand or see the world. Exactly. Yeah. And I think from a mental health standpoint, it's something that, I mean, I try to focus on the kind of sessions with clients and on our show here, that for us, in terms of our belief systems, it's really, really difficult for us to let go of them because they make us feel safe. And so a lot of times mm-hmm. from a clinical standpoint, what I see is even toxic beliefs are sometimes preferable to uncertainty. So for this, when we talk about obviously implicit, implicit bias, kind of when we focus on belief systems, and in particular, obviously the focal point of the show is the illusion of consciousness for people the uncertainty a lot of times is way more intolerable than maybe a belief system that obviously isn't real or even one that maybe doesn't help anybody live the kind of the best version of their own lives i yeah absolutely i mean one reason i i i hesitated there was because i i realized there was there were two different ways of going here and i just sort of argued in favor of both of them one is to say that this illusion is benign that it does you know that it's you know it, it makes us feel special it makes mm-hmm. us, you know as nick humphrey argues in the book i mentioned sold us that it's a it's a good thing it makes our lives seem rich and intense and very personal and we know we matter a lot on this picture maybe that's good on the other hand i was stressing a little earlier the idea of breaking down this illusion and seeing ourselves much more as as uh, you know breaking down this sense of self-centeredness and um, and, and specialness mm-hmm. so and I'm, I'm genuinely unsure which way I would want to go on that. I, I think it's quite, you know, there are benign aspects to it. There may be aspects to it that we could, well, but this, what's interesting, I think, about this view is it puts us kind of, it gives us a sort of measure of control over this. We can think about this and think about, you know, you know the way that I'm conceptualizing my own consciousness, maybe I can change it a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, change it in ways that maybe I still kind of live in this world of, 
you know, selfness, selfhood and subjectivity and so on in this inner world. So maybe I live in that a lot of the time, I inhabit it, but I recognize it's not kind of fundamental reality. And I recognize that it is possible to sort of break it down and to take a view of the world where we are not isolated selves. And we could combine both of these pictures. They don't, we don't have to, we, we, the, I mean, we can live both of these pictures at different times. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we are just in ourselves as it were. Sometimes we're out of ourselves. Um, What's interesting is that it kind of opens up options. I mean, I suppose one way of putting what I want to say is that the inner world is as much a construct. It's I think most people accept in a way that our our, our, um, our view of the outer world is to some extent a, a construction of our brains. You know, the, the things that, that that we are sensitive to. Um, that's dependent on the nature of our sensory systems and the way it interprets things, the way it puts things together. It's like Sometimes it said it's a sort of controlled hallucination. It's a kind of interpretation of the world. What I want to suggest is that our conception of our inner lives is also something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't seem like it because we've got no way of sort of... Uh, it's easy to see that different people see the external world differently because we can talk to them about it and say, does that look bent? Does that look, you know, does that look distorted to you? Do you see movement then? They say, no, I don't. You say, okay, so we can sort of negotiate it. We can't negotiate this inner perspective because there's no one else sharing it. Mm -hmm. And so we take it for reality. We take our conception of our own minds as being the thing that is, you know, directly present to us, to us as you know, irreducible selves, and that is the kind of basis of all our experience of the world. But I think that's as much a construction of the brain as, the, as our sense of the external world. And once you recognize this, then yes, there are new possibilities, I think, for how, how I mean, our inner world is to some extent what we take it to be. It's our interpretation of it and, and, and interpretation which we can shape, I think, by the sort of stories we tell about ourselves. I mean, here's... Um, uh, um, maybe this this little anecdote might help. I don't have you. Do you know the um, what's it called? Um, uh, I can't remember the exact one. It's inner experience sampling. Um, it's a technique. I don't think that's the right name for it, but it's a technique developed by Russ Herbert, the um, psychologist, where uh, to sample what people's inner experience is like. And what you do is you you wear a little device on your uh, on your belt with, with a little head um, um, earpiece mm -hmm. and at various points during the day the thing just beeps randomly and when it beeps what you're to do is you're to write down what you're actually experiencing at that very moment mm -hmm. not your not the, about what you're thinking about and how you're in, you know how you're planning the, 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 the your movements and everything, but what you're actually feeling at that very, very moment, just concentrating on the absolute immediate character of your experience. Mm -hmm. um, and then later you talk to the experimenter through this, and one thing the experimenter tries to do is to get you to just focus, to, to pull away the interpretation. Uh, so instead of interpreting this event as a sign of something or a recollection or something, you just concentrate on the pure character of the experience. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not sure that actually is possible. I think it's all interpreted to some extent. But one of the interesting things about this is that people who've gone through this say it yeah. uh, has a wonderful therapeutic effect because they find that <laughs> their experience is a lot more, maybe a lot more positive mm -hmm. as described in this moment-by-moment -moment way than they thought it was because oh, they, were wow. telling themselves, they were telling themselves a story about their lives in which, say, you know, things were going badly for them. Mm -hmm. And the framework, the narrative framework they had was not a very 
positive one. But the moment-by-moment -moment experiences were actually fairly, fairly positive. Mm -hmm. They were seeing some things, looking at a flyer, seeing they were just thinking of some pleasant memory or whatever. And these things didn't really get incorporated very strongly into the narrative they told. Mm -hmm. They were kind of played and the more negative ones were emphasized in the narrative. And so what it was doing was helping them to, as it were, construct a different narrative for themselves, a narrative composed of these little moments of happiness. Wow. And I, I'm not sure that Russ has actually used it in this sort of therapeutic way, but I think it's a, certainly a possibility. And to some extent, uh, and so now what was it, what's it like for this person? What's it like for a person who is actually having moment-by-moment -moment experiences that are fairly positive, but is telling themselves a negative story? Mm -hmm. What's it like? What's their subjectivity? It's a story. It's a construction. And you can change that story. That's, the, the, you know, it's, it's not that experience is sort of given to you metaphysically and there it is and that's, that's the show playing in your head and you've got to, got to live with it. Mm -hmm. You are kind of, I mean, there isn't exactly a show in that sense. There is just a, a reaction to the world and to yourself. And you can shape that story and shape how you react to it and therefore shape your sense of what the show is. Right. And I think that for a lot of it, a lot of us have to be open to the possibility that something that we're thinking or some belief that we have is wrong, which is why I think that your belief or your kind of conception of consciousness scares a lot of people. I think for them, they already think they know what life is like. And obviously the world as it is, is not, it's not a safe place overall. And so, I mean, it's not that dangerous either, but the point is for a lot of people is very scary. And to, what's uh, I would like to say that be that as it may, mm. At least, I understand this is one interpretation. Mm -hmm. I find it to be actually a, a liberating sort of view. Mm -hmm. Now, but fair, fair enough, if we want to continue that yeah. stream of... No, I hear you. I, yeah. It definitely can be, but my interpretation is that if somebody already has an understanding of what their worlds are like, mm -hmm. so it's very, very hard to get them to see things differently, like with the stories that we tell ourselves, oh, because even if the stories are really, let's say if they're outside of the conception of consciousness, right? Like, let's say if the narrative that they paint them themselves is that, let's say maybe I'm consistently the victim, um, I don't have any control in my life, I'm always sad, um, nobody really likes me right in a sense that makes them feel safe in the world because the world in itself is predictable mm -hmm. I mean, even, even though the stories are bad the so yeah. and i think with consciousness that sort of i think that raises maybe not necessarily raises the question but that points to the fact that for us because survival is way more important than happiness from an evolutionary standpoint that we feel like let's say the stories that we tell ourselves are conducive to our survival or more so because then our worlds are predictable even if they're not good or even if they don't make us happy what, what are your thoughts That's keith I, I think that's exactly right. And um, let me, I mean, let me just spin back to the story I was telling about the different kinds of belief here. Mm -hmm. And you know, that certain, that conscious beliefs are something like commitments that we make. Commitments to sort of, I mean, um, it's Frank Ramsey who said beliefs are maps by which we steer. Mm -hmm. That's a nice one. And I love that and, quote. Yes, and, and conscious beliefs, I think, are kind of like markers on this map. You say, I'm going to steer by that marker on the map, and I've set it there. Mm -hmm. Now, so, now. You don't necessarily need to do that because you've got a whole host of things that will just take you through life pretty well, often without setting explicit markers on things. But we kind of have a, I think we have a culture where it's, um, we're expected to sort of have opinions, opinions, these explicit commitments, things you can articulate. Mm -hmm. And we're constantly asking people, you know, what's, what's their opinion about this? What's your opinion about that? And uh, I suppose you, I mean, I suppose you don't really know. You know, you say, well, what do I think about uh, some sort of economic or foreign policy question? You probably don't really know. You're not an expert, and so, but you're kind of under pressure, and so you say, okay, well, I think we, I think the country should do this. 
and you've sort of made a commitment. You've put down a little marker on the map there and saying that. Now, maybe it was maybe it was a toss of a coin the first time. You just someone's expecting an opinion of you, so you you gave one. But now you've said it, it's kind of been something, you've got a sort of responsibility for it now. Mm -hmm. And if you immediately afterwards said, oh, no, wait, actually, I don't think I think the opposite, you can't look a bit, you know, um, sort of indecisive, and that's not good. Mm -hmm. So you say, yeah, yeah, I think that. And then, of course, somebody says to you, why do you think that? And you think, oh, right, why do I think that? Now, one thing that we know that the human reasoning system is very good at is kind of finding reasons to support things you already believe. Mm -hmm. So here you've got this commitment and, you know, you start with it kind of, so you start thinking of reasons for it. And you, you maybe heard somebody else say something or whatever or something in the newspaper. So you say, that's the reason I like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, now you've not only got this commitment, but now you've got a reason supporting it. And so, again, the next time you come out with the commit, with the thing and the reason and somebody maybe has an objection to this and... So you have to think of another uh, response to that and so on. And each time you're investing more and more in this commitment that you originally made, maybe on the flip of a coin. And it becomes more and more part of you. People now expect you to be the person who defends that view. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you were to change and suddenly say, I've given it up, you know, people think, well, you know, indecisive, that's terrible. And so we, we end up sort of laying down these markers and they become more and more important to them, more and more you invest in them. And we end up steering ourselves by them. Even in the face, and this is where it kind of can often work the opposite to um, to implicit bias. Maybe that our instincts are sort of the, the way we on autopilot. We're, we're out of sync with these things. Maybe we have some rather nasty political views that we've found ourselves getting trapped into, which are kind of out of sync with our general, generally benevolent attitude to the world, say. But we've now got pinned down by them, yeah. and it's and if, of course, if you find you're in a community where these things get reinforced and expected of you, and so. On, and so you can you can end up having a whole set of rather rather unpleasant or you know difficult to manage opinions that you can't kind of get out of, yeah. and have been sort of and, and I think I mean one of one of the morals I draw from that is that it's 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 often much better to just say I don't know mm -hmm. when asked what you think about something, um, or say it's complicated, or say well maybe we break it down and on that specific thing I'm fairly confident, but the whole thing. I, I just think we, I, we're, 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 we're expected to be dogmatic and then we kind of um, make ourselves dogmatic. Um, and I think that also, as you, to connecting to what you were saying, can work with stories we tell about our own lives. Mm -hmm. we can ex we, if we start explaining our behavior in terms of a certain sort of, again, if we lay down a marker that it's because that happened to me or because I can't handle this thing, that then becomes a marker. You can find more and more reasons for thinking that that's the explanation for your behavior. People expect you to um, they, they start to see you as the person whose behavior is explained by that fact. Mm -hmm. And you, you, you have to play the role. You're into the role. And uh, it's very hard to get out of a role that you started playing like that. It can be a, it's a political commitment. It can be a, a, an explanation for your own behavior. It can be all sorts of things. And uh, I, I, and I don't think our culture encourages people to be um, uh, flexible in their commitments, to change their commitments very easily. Changing your mind is seen as a weakness. Yeah, it's terrible. I mean, we should be people should be changing their minds all the time. Mm -hmm. um, there's no particular virtue in sticking with something. And, and, and you get to the point, of course, where you, you, it no longer seems like something you just took on as a commitment, it becomes, it becomes you, it becomes part of your identity. Mm -hmm. um, so yes, I mean, I guess, I, I guess that's, 
in line with the sort of thing you would with the picture you were just presenting there. Absolutely, and knowledge of this actually is is a, if you will, a, like a portal out, a, a way out yeah. mm-hmm. uh, for people. If if let's say at one point they did not know that they tend to backwards rationalize mm-hmm. or invest in a certain identity, or because yeah. of certain social pressures of where they live, they may continue to invest in certain viewpoints mm-hmm. just to appear acceptable that's fascinating because if somebody learns that now and they hadn't known that before that can lead to other sorts of behaviors and decisions based on that uh it's not as this kind of info even though like we've heard it before keith has heard it before uh it's not as yet widely accessible around the world Mm -hmm. um i think it's becoming more and more accessible but definitely this is incredibly useful uh, to our audience, to everyone, yeah, yeah. and I, and I think what, and there's, there there are specific cultural sort of pressures that can reinforce this, but also there's a there's a very widespread one certainly in the West, which is this idea about strength of mind, about not changing your mind, being um, uh, decisive, and of course there are some advantages to this. If if, if you're in a, an emergency situation, you need to decide quickly and stick to it, but. In general, I, I just wish we could be more tolerant of indecision of people saying, I don't know, because if, unless you're very confident and you're really happy to, 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 to adopt some light, lay down some marker and keep steering bite, don't do it. You don't need to. You won't, <laughs> your, your world won't fall apart. You will be able to keep, you'll have this background of autopilot stuff that will take you through, through, through things. Uh, you don't always need to have big explanations of things. Right. And, and the, the explanations can be very fragmented and messy and incomplete. You don't necessarily need to have a simple story to tell about why things are as they are. Yeah, and I think the indecisiveness or our sort of from our perspective, our difficulty of tolerating others' indecisiveness yeah. has to come from our own fear of our own sort of uncertainty. I can't imagine that that isn't a projection. And it's something that I mentioned earlier that in terms of belief system, I think that we would really hold on to beliefs that either are unrealistic or beliefs that, let's say, maybe are toxic in some way just for the simple fact that we feel safe having them. Mm -hmm. And the uncertainty is just for a lot of people intolerable. Absolutely. And we want to know where other people are. We want... We want to know what position they they, they take, even if it's one we don't like, because then at least we can deal with them. We know we can activate that sort of set of responses. Right. the idea that somebody is just indefinable in that way is kind of a bit unnerving, I think. Yeah, terrifying. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they're unpredictable. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. exactly. Uh, and, uh, but I, I think, I mean, I know it's the, 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 um, you know, the British comedian Spike Milligan mm-hmm. um, referring to opinion polls. He said that um, one day the don't knows would get elected. Mm-hmm. And then where would we be? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I kind of, in some respects, I think the don't knows might do a lot better job. Right. That I remember that. That was actually yeah, yeah. that was a really good Amazon. <laughs> so I mean, obviously, Keith, we want to really be mindful of your time and just thank you, obviously, so much for all of this great information. That I'm gonna have to listen to the show again to take it all in. And so before we go, Alan, do you have any final questions for Keith? Um, yeah, uh, Keith, uh, if we wanted to follow your work, uh, where, 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 could, where could we, bleh, sorry, <laughs> where could we find you? <laughs> um, my website is, is, I try to keep it updated, I'm the various other places, but my website is the one I'm most likely to update, and that's just www.keithfrankish, one word, dot com. 
Mm. And where can we find you on social media? The best place to find me is Twitter. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm quite lively on Twitter, and I do try to um, um, to engage with people. And uh, I enjoy talking to people on Twitter. I enjoy people taking an interest in these things. And I find that if you, I know Twitter, Twitter can be an awful place, really, because precisely because people are just um, expecting and then you know acting up to certain uh, stereotypes and roles. Mm -hmm. And uh, but I try to just 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 talk to people, and I find that you can have some quite productive and interesting discussions and uh, I actually enjoy interacting on Twitter. I, if people are kind of rude, just, yes. just leave them to it and um, uh, talk to the interesting ones. And So yes, you can find me on Twitter and that's just again at Keith Frankish. And Keith, I want to commend you on your, the way you deal with people on Twitter because I actually struggle with it. When uh, when I have Twitter trolls, it's like it's it's really hard for me not to respond in a rude or nasty way. So, but you've done a really great job with it's it. It's interesting that, isn't it? It's interesting. We, I think we all feel it. We all, uh, but I, I I I really don't like being rude to people. Mm -hmm. it, 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 I, I guess you know, I think it's bad but also I, I just I just don't like being rude it just upsets me mm -hmm. I feel like I've let myself down if I'm rude so um I'm sure if you scroll back through my Twitter history you'll find occasions where I've I've um I've you know, not lived up to my own um uh, principles on this but I, I I think there isn't any point in engaging in rude it's just it's just a waste of everyone's time yeah, uh, I completely agree with you. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you honestly, yeah. Uh, it's a it's a waste of mental resources. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And emotional resources. It upsets. It's upsetting to do this. So, I I generally either ignore or just say something, just send a smiley face or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Which is probably more annoying than being. <laughs> they probably would be. <laughs> all right Keith thank you again so much for coming on thank you so much for all the information that you provided us with definitely a lot of food for thought thanks for inviting me it's been a pleasure thank you thank you Keith have a good day you too alright that was cool wow <laughs> alright well guys if you want to follow us Check us out at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook and on Instagram, mm -hmm. and at Seize underscore Podcast on Twitter. Yep. Uh, remember to subscribe. Hit the bell. Hit the bell. Mm -hmm. And also, uh, if you want to follow uh, the article that we found with Keith, yep. it's on aeon.co, A-E-O-N.co. Mm -hmm. You can just look up Keith Frankish next to that, let's say in Google, yep. and it should be the first result. That's the article we're mainly talking about. The illusion of consciousness. Illusion of consciousness. All right, guys. See you next week. See ya.